Okay, I think that worked. Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to Tammy and Andy. How are you, how are you guys spending your Labor Day today? Laboring. <laughs> yeah. I was catching up on work because I was traveling all week. Same with Tammy, I assume. Where'd you go, Andy? Uh, the Poconos, Pocono Mountains. It's oh. like, uh, it's like upstate New, upstate Pennsylvania. Excuse me, New York. Upstate Pennsylvania, solidly Trump country. So a little worried about that. Uh, saw a lot of flags up there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and there's a lot of New Yorkers there also. It's kind of like halfway between Philly and New York. Yeah. And uh, I think people we talk to, you know, they're all worried about flying on airplanes. So I think a lot of people decided to go there for their trips. Um, it was good. It was good to get away. Um, but uh, I don't know. Then it just automatically puts you like way behind with teaching and everything, which I'm sure Tammy is also. You also went. Yeah. Tra- you also went camping, or I went camping to Glacier National Park over the weekend. It was great. Yeah, oh, that's great. Glacier is yeah, great. So beautiful here. It was my first time. So amazing. And then yeah. now back to school. So yeah. <laughs> How about you, Jay? What's up? Uh, it's like a hundred and twelve here. I think. Oh my gosh. Yeah, there's like this little area near me called Kensington. I don't know what it has its own school district. It's one of these little incorporated towns, and mm-hmm. it's uh, I don't know. Everyone in, in Kensington is like a hundred. Is like. 80 years old but they uh <laughs> next door they said that the it was the highest recorded temperature i think in 50 years oh in kensington and they said it was like 112 which i don't know if i believe because uh but it was really hot and yesterday was really hot too and you know the fires are going again so yeah. uh, we have like kind yeah. of an inferno type of feel here but um i don't know i I've, i get i'm exhausted by it already and so i kind of understand why people don't flee these zones when you know everyone's like how could they not flee uh aren't they aware and i'm just like look (laughs) i'm already ready i've only been here six months and you know there's (laughs) there's enough of i've had enough inferno uh warnings to uh last me a lifetime so if i'm the person left then you know that's my own fault are those the same (laughs) fires that were caused by the gender reveal party I think that's in LA, but I don't know. I mean, I yeah, the, this that was the second one that happened. It was like okay. the second gender reveal party. Because <laughs> there was one in Arizona two years ago. I remember. Yeah, yeah. I like shot a fire gun and really. Yeah, oh it was. God. They caught it on video. It was insane. Yeah, people need to stop oh, yeah. doing that. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what else to say, but it would be nice if they stopped doing that. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, we have a lot to talk about, so let's just get right into it this week. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, you know, and look, we don't always do the most topical show here, but um, I will say that this thing, I, I sort of didn't want to talk about it because I didn't yeah. know if we had anything to say about it, but this Jessica Krug, a.k.a. Jess, Jess La Bom- Bombolera um, <laughs> news that came out. This week, it's an interesting thing because on the face of it, it seems like it's the type of thing that we should just not make too big of a deal about because it, you know, right. it will feed into a type of narrative about the academy and about, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like quote unquote so called racial uh, radical politics that, you know, we shouldn't be feeding into. But it seems like a lot of people are trying to wrest some sort of great meaning out of this. And, you know, I like this is still unconfirmed, but today it seems like there was another person that came out. Um, you know, that got outed as being a white person 
that was pretending to be a uh, minority. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. This stuff is really weird. Andy, <laughs> I want to ask you first because you're, yeah, you know, Andy. like you're, although both of you are now professors, I want to ask, you know, like, is does this surprise you at all? Because you have much more of a front front row seat to like sort of the way in which this mm-hmm. stuff gets discussed. And just La Bombalera was a history professor as well. Right. So <laughs> let, let, let us know what, what, what you think. Yeah, no, I, t- I told you guys offline, coincidentally, I had looked at her faculty profile like a year ago because, you know, academics are just always constantly Googling each other. And and I was like, I was trying to remember, did I actually think she was black when I looked at her profile? And I think mm-hmm. she just was like struck me as a white woman. So it was, it was really surprising that she was trying to pull off the Dolezal thing. Um, with, But she just kind of didn't strike me as actually like going through with the whole process. I mean, it's surprising, of course, like the extent to which she's doing this and the actual you know, brazenness of the lie. Yeah. The more I was thinking about it, I think the the take I was kind of uh, arriving at was similar to the one that Tore Reid wrote about for Jacobin yesterday mm-hmm. that, you know, we don't know anything about her. She mentioned family issues and perhaps mental health issues at some point. So right. we don't want to speculate about her. But I, I think what we can all kind of speculate about is sort of the market incentives towards cultural authenticity that are certainly rampant in parts of academic life and I assume political, journalistic, any sort of... Well, okay, what, what does that mean, though? What is what is What are the incentives? Like, explain it a little right. bit more. So I, I think that, you know, anytime you have, like, someone who's supposed to be an expert on a people or a part of the world, um, there's... Uh, I mean, it depends on, like, the department, because I don't think all departments are like this, but certain fields certainly would attach like the quality of your scholarship to like who are you like what is your subject position Mm -hmm. are you how do you have access to what it's like for instance to be black or to be you know from a latin american country or from an african or asian country right but that's not the case in all the fields so that actually i think is also interesting like i think certain fields that might have come out of that sort of ethnic studies moment that you know we've talked about in the show in the 60s and 70s place more emphasis upon that than the field that I've kind of stumbled into, which is history, which tends to be a much more conservative field. Like I think. Well, okay. Was, like, do you get any advantage from being like, uh, you know, like an East Asian person in chi- doing, yeah, China? doing China? So I don't actually think nearly as much as maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a discount in that department. I know. Yeah. Your 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 takeaway from this is that uh, look. <laughs> Actually, there needs to be more emphasis on this for me, particularly. No, that's that. I was curious about that. That's what I wanted to ask you about. I would, I would say, like for instance, I don't know if you all thought about this before. As a professional, once you get to become a professional expert on Asia or whatever, like, do I, do I put my Chinese name out there? Do I put my Chinese name as like my middle name? Mm. Do I start stop going by Andy, which I've gone by my entire life, and start going by my Chinese name? Do I change the pronunciation of my surname? And people definitely do that. And it's you know, obviously it's their right. And I, the flip side could be like, well, it's not as if the you know super Anglo assimilated name that my parents chose for me so, should be like my authentic self. Like maybe in my 20s and 30s, I would just decide to start pronouncing my name differently. And that's totally okay, right? But I do think it, like academia was the first place where people would actually like make an effort to, pr- to pronounce my name differently the way it's mm. supposed to sound in Mandarin. And I had to like ask oh, myself, really? like, yeah, like, do, do I go this route or not? And I ultimately chose not to because 
I don't know, maybe I'm too like whitewashed or something, but it, it, it just it would just kind of feel weird. But I, I knew I know other scholars who have like kind of changed their name or and and uh, you know and you know I'm not I'm not judging them. Like I think this stuff is complex, but I, but I also think like it would be foolish to say that there is zero um, incentive to do that in order to kind of change your image. Okay, so th- right. what we're saying here, or what you seem to be saying, is that there is some incentive there that people there's, do yeah, it, definitely. and you've thought about it. I mean, I, I, I cannot imagine that that's not true, right? Of course, that's true. Tammy, if you went and like, if you went to Korea and you were like, let's say you were like, uh, whatever the <laughs> the New York uh, news, let's not even name a newspaper. Let's say you're their <laughs> Korean correspondent, and you had to move to Seoul, and would you change? Would you go by your Korean name at that point? To like make it easier for you to report on Korea. Yep. Yeah. So technically, Tammy Kim is my Korean name. <laughs> what? Oh, you really? Because my name is, is Kim Tammy. So oh. we anglicized it in like sure. this old-fashioned American that's, name way. Yeah. That's great. So yeah. I'm basically like fully legit already, Jay. And I okay. have nothing. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I was curious about what you, you were saying. You should spell it T A E M I. That would be right. Parents that that's true. That's They're true. Like they chose them at the same time. Well, no, because uh, te's are tolimta, like the what, the syllable you're supposed to have in our generation. Yeah, okay, okay. Oh, so, yeah, and you guys have that for women too, okay. Well, yeah, I guess traditionally you only apply it to dudes, but, you know, right. my yeah. parents did it to both. But I didn't know Korean yeah. had that. Yeah, we have that. Yeah, yeah we have that. Me and all my cousins have the same. <laughs> we all have same yeah. yeah, we all have that, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cross, cross Asian solidarity. I, so you would, Tammy, you would think about it too. Like you would make a move towards authenticity that obviously is not to save us what uh, what um, <laughs> what Miss Krug did, but but you would do something like that. Well, I actually was curious, like what you guys think about the Asian thing, because we've also talked about how like white people who do China studies or whatever and mm-hmm. like are fluent in Mandarin, for instance, like actually have more legitimacy in some quarters than people who are like, quote unquote, heritage speakers. So in a way, yeah. I think it functions differently than like a black person doing FM studies or like exactly. a Latino doing, you yeah. know, ethnic studies. So uh, what do you guys think about that? Because I do think the race stuff can operate differently. Yeah, I mean, my guess is in Asian American studies, which would have come out of that sort of 60s, 70s moment that Viet Thanh Nguyen was talking about, there would be much more of an emphasis placed upon um, uh, talking about your subject position, mm-hmm. right? just like being open about it. Whereas in Chinese history or Chinese studies, which is is rooted in the Cold War, right. it's rooted Cold in like, War, the government, studies. it predates yeah. ethnic studies. Mm-hmm. There's like zero, as far as I could tell, zero discussion about right. like <laughs> let's situate our like let's situate ourselves in relation to the colonial or the imperial project or whatever. There's yeah. none of that. And yeah, you different. Get these you know these websites like China File just ran this thing last two weeks ago about like Chinese experts on the U.S. China trade relations, and it's just like ten yeah, white scholars. Yeah, exactly. And, that's completely normal in Chinese studies, though. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. China is the one that is the most like that, right? Like where it is a white guy's. It's sort of a white <laughs> boys club that goes out and yeah. studies China. And then they get a lot of the journalistic. Uh, they, they even get a lot of the journalism stuff as well, or a lot of the assignments. But like, sure. uh, I think that is changing a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I think what we're dancing around here is that um, if you are part of a field of study where the basis of it or the core of it or a big core of it is that people are oppressed right like these people are oppressed then the sense is that you have to be from that oppressed people to really understand what that oppression is like on a 
personal, psychological, and also like, I don't know, generational familial scale, which I think is, you know, I think that's a fair thing to ask, right? Like, I think that, that if somebody, um, if we're, we seem to be past the days when, um, when you would have this sort of stereotype of the white, uh, African-American studies professor, like that was, that was very big at the night and the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. And also (laughs) in the, I just remember there's like an episode of the boondocks. I don't know if I'm supposed to mention that show because maybe it's canceled, but there was like a white African-American studies professor and he would like go Akshay. (laughs) 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 And, uh, um, that was a stereotype, but I don't think that's really a stereotype anymore. Right. Like I think that, 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 that has changed, but at the same time, I don't know. I don't know if you guys had any professors like this, but when I was in college, I had a professor who was, uh, you know, the sort of Hinduism professor. Like he taught a lot of the stuff about India and he did this great Hinduism class that I took that I loved. Mm. But, you know, he was this old white guy and he was uh, he was, of course, married to like an Indian woman and had like two Indian kids and spent a lot of time in India. But like that's sort of the like Asian studies. I'm not talking about Asian American studies. Asian studies, a lot of white guys like that. And I think that the reason why it's still okay is because there's no assumption of like a power difference in the same way that you would. And it's still sort of like, I don't know, it's probably still tinged a lot by Orientalism and the idea that this is such a foreign thing that you have to study. And that's probably not true because uh, in terms of like uh, black even in Africa, because like Jessica Krug, it seemed like most of the studying or most of the papers that she wrote, most of her scholarship was about Angola. It was about like Africa. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I think that there that that is like sort of the difference. Right. To set all that up. Right. Yeah. OK. Um, well, what would you guys what did you what, like? Th- this is sort of the type of thing that always goes viral. Like, what did you yeah. think about it? Uh, Tammy, what do you think? Mm. I don't, I don't think I have anything super sophisticated to add. I mean, my first reaction was that it was extremely tragicomic. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I know that all three of us were thinking about, of course, Dalazal, and people were calling her like academic Dalazal. Um, but this seemed so much more extreme and kind of toxic. Um, I was fascinated by this the shape-shifting, like the constant shape-shifting that she did and the geographic cosplay that was involved. So it was both racial, but also like she was like doing different things at different times based on like what held currency in the academic location she was in. Mm. So I thought that was fascinating because like when she got to New York, she started doing this like El Barrio thing. But when she was in Wisconsin, she was doing like an Algerian thing that also had like a very troubling like black rape narrative involved. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that I mean, that's like (laughs) that was just like, how do you even wrap your mind around that? And I think also just this whole issue that we've talked about on this show about, you know, racial ambiguity and like how you can kind of traffic in these spaces that, you know, are opened up by like transracial stuff and multiracial stuff um it's there's just a lot going on there so i was kind of obsessed with the like algerian to el barrio thing i know that was that was weird i, I do think like it was when was she it? was in grad school right when she said that she was algerian and then once she got wisconsin. to yeah, 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 yeah. in wisconsin yeah. uh I, yeah i mean the thing that kind of struck me was it wasn't just that she was changing her story but she's also constantly kind of like shitting on other people for not being either yeah. not being black enough or, you know, they're white. So how dare you speak about black people? Right. Um, or, oh you know, goodness. and 
you know, this might be me reading too much into it, but again, that kind of goes back to this idea of like market and like, like in academia, um, culture, cultural authenticity becomes just like another terrain for like market competition, mm-hmm. um, especially in an industry that's been shrinking as, you know, everyone who knows any academic friend has probably knows by now that there's fewer and fewer jobs available, fewer and fewer spaces available. And so, you know, I, I think it's a good thing that there's these initiatives to try to diversify the academy, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of um, a necessary, not necessary, but it's a structural consequence of pushing for diversity in a shrinking industry makes mm. being authentic or diverse or whatever you want to call it like this um, asset that that yeah. that you hold and that you can wield against other people who lack that asset, right? Yeah, so, I don't, I, I have a hard time. Like, it seems like there's, a few things that need to be said out loud to even have to begin an actual conversation <laughs> about this woman, which is the first is that like, of course that yes, it does benefit her in some ways career wise, I think to have not been a white woman from Kansas in this field. Right. Like we can say that, like, do you remember when that chi- that white yeah. guy was writing poems as like a Chinese yeah. dude? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I remember thinking back then because his argument and a lot of people's argument was that he was like, well, I couldn't be published if I was just a boring white guy. Mm-hmm. And so your first instinct is always to just be like, Oh my God, every boring white guy, like that's what publishing <laughs> is. You know, like look at all the editor, <laughs> look at the mastheads of everywhere. But at the same time, I was trying to think about it and I was like, well, within pushes for diversity like what does that do to people's brains who are boring white guys you know like in the biggest example of this i think is in tv writing right where i have i have a lot of friends who are in tv writing um and they are constantly looking out for like diverse people right like and and so that's why every uh there's so many magazine writers who are like quote unquote diverse who get jobs in television because like they are looking for those people because TV writing is so white. Right. And it's so like just guys from Harvard. And so this is a good thing that they're doing. And a lot of the stuff that has come out because of this push has been fantastic. Like, you know, for example, like Watchmen, whatever, all these shows have like diverse staff writers now. And you know, those people are paid a living wage or paid pretty well. And they're able to do really good work, um, which is not true in journalism. So I'm saying all this is a good thing, but Right. If you're a boring white guy, you know, who is like all the other boring white guys who is trying to break into television and your politics can be totally fine. Right. Like you cannot be racist in any sort of way and you can be all about the protest. You kind of know in the back of your head mm-hmm. that it's harder for you to get a job and that it would be easier for you to get a job if you were black or Latino or maybe even Asian, you know, yeah. Um and like that's just true you know and the people like do you remember uh, like it reminds I, I don't mean to ramble about this too much but like do you remember uh do you remember like the heart is deceitful above all things that book jt Leroy? Mm-hmm. um okay so there's this woman who uh w- worked in publishing and she wrote this book and it was a, I, I actually thought it was a very good book and you know it, but it was she said it was written by like a 15 year old trans youth prostitute who would like sleep with truckers at truck stops you know oh and she was playing that role and so all these celebrities were like you know really into the book and they were trying to like find who is jt Leroy, oh and my ended God. up being this woman <laughs> this like 40 year old woman who works in publishing and uh there's this whole scandal about it but i think about that where i'm just like i think as a fiction writer i'm totally fine with uh laura albert who is a woman doing that right i think it's totally fine to like put that fiction out there into the world 
But, you know, in terms of like that book was such a big hit because everyone thought that it was written by the actual yeah. protagonist of the book. So um, is there a way right now? I don't know. Is there a way that like a lot of people are feeling this within the these moments of pushing for diversity? And is there going to be more of this? <laughs> I guess is my question. Uh, because right now, for example, in media, Tammy, like, you know, like they're they're there are jobs that like are they're just never going to hire a white guy for, you know, yeah. and there are tons of jobs they will hire a white guy for. But of course, the thing that everyone gets mad about is the job that they're never going to hire the white guy for. Yeah. In uh, this particular moment for a period, <laughs> we shall, we shall yeah. see. But yeah, I, I, I guess that's sort of Tere Reid's argument in the Jacobin essay, right? Which is that, you know, I think he says what she did is offensive and what's more offensive is the minstrelsy that you know certain racial kind of quota well i don't want to say quota because i actually think some of those quotas from the past are fine but the (laughs) the sort of i guess like box ticking yeah you know like racial woke crap is kind of like putting people into to some extent i don't know though i mean this is such an extreme case i mean are there are there lesser forms of this where people aren't like truly being fraudulent but they are basically collapsing into a kind of minstrelsy that you guys can think of um okay well what would you put an over under how many of these people do you think they're <laughs> on the academy i have been thinking about this all week oh my god yeah i have a number yeah, yeah. she's the betting man yeah no number total number not one percent i hope it's less than like point one percent seven percent of all academics um <laughs> wait wait yeah what how many do you think there are if you had to guess? Uh, oh my god Oh, is this, are we going to press his right this? What is yeah, yeah. No, no, no. There's <laughs> no press it. Whoever's, uh, yeah. I nationwide. Guess we wide, yeah, in nationwide. all levels of academia. Uh, right? I'd yeah. say there's three more. Um, three beyond, more? That's it? Oh, man. I was I was <laughs> going for like, I, I went for like 52. I was going to say 25. <laughs> <laughs> you think there's only three more? I, think I guess we a... know who's the most cynical person among the three. <laughs> well, damn it. 25 is pretty high. Too. I, think I guess so. I really do think there's more than 50 of these people out there. Well, okay. What is, what is the line here? Because yeah, there's that's... like creative, like I identify as white, but I, you know, I have an ancestor from this part of the world and... Blah blah blah. That's one thing, right? Versus, we don't have to get into like race science and say you have to be one eighth at least. (laughs) No, I'm talking about how they they present themselves. People who, yeah, okay. Let's let's put it this way then. Let people who always grew up as white, like where Mm -hmm. they were were not questioning their whiteness, that they always thought they were white. Because who knows? Jessica Krug might be more Native American than Elizabeth Warren, right? We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) She probably is, you know, because Elizabeth Warren is so not a Native American. But like um, underneath the, the range of <laughs> the range of problems. Yeah, so let's let's. Um, how many do you think there are people who grew up thinking they're white who have decided to, um, you just, know, take on a new identity? Just identify yeah. as. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Okay, let's go to our next topic, which is very related. Um, which is, uh, did you, Annie? This is something that you talked with Merlin about um, in an earlier podcast. But did you guys read this uh, newest Adolf Reed article? Yeah. Yeah. On non-site. Really interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nonsite.org. Uh, he wrote it with uh, Walter Ben Michaels. And, you know, it's a sort of extrapolation of a lot of the stuff that he has been writing about that mm-hmm. we've been talking about. And I've been 
I've been thinking about it because I was just like, well, why do we talk about Adolf Reed so much? Is it because everyone <laughs> on Twitter talks about Adolf Reed? Like, what is it about Adolf Reed that is interesting to us? And uh, Andy, what, <laughs> answer that question. What is, what is it about Adolf Reed that's interesting to <laughs> us? Why do we keep he, talking about him? I think Reed's arguments, he gets at a real dynamic. Now we can talk, we can, I think we're about to talk about whether or not that dynamic is exhaustive of reality, right? Or, or like, does he actually capture the full reality of what's going on with left politics today? But I think his specific analysis of a sort of um, way that race gets detached from thinking about political economy is he's not, and he's not the only one who says this, right? But I think it's, it's a very sharp and, you know, precise argument that I appreciate. And um, and he, he kind of writes the same article uh, every few years. So yeah. in a way, it's kind <laughs> yeah. of like, now every up. now every few months, he's so prolific. Yeah, I know. So you're like his, right. So it's like, you know, this argument in general is out there, but at least with Reed, you get updates. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway. So let me, uh, Tammy, before we get, I, I want your reaction, but let me just like summarize this for yeah, the listeners, which is that Adolf Reed wrote this article in which he said that anti, essentially that anti-racism efforts were part of neoliberal capitalism and that he's he cited this paper that Mike, matt Broenig wrote which was about the racial wealth gap and he said that basically the focus of anti-racism has been on the racial wealth gap and that the problem with that is that what it doesn't do is that it doesn't look at like actual the difference between most people right once you factor in the richest people in america then every number gets skewed and that if you have billionaires lumped in with white people then you know like all the numbers get kind of expanded out and become a little bit wonky and a little bit difficult to parse. And the problem with that is that essentially the only way that he sees, and I think Matt Broenig also sees, to actually close the racial wealth gap is stop stop fixating within within categories, right? So like the idea that like a low class black worker should not make twenty cents less than a low like a you know essential worker who was white, let's say, like right, right. that 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 is a meaningful difference in some ways. But the act, it skews away from the actual meaningful difference overall. And so one of the things that he writes, and I think this is sort of the summation of the argument, is that policies of social democratic redistribu- redistribution that reduce the effective income differentials between top and bottom, combined with serious anti-discrimination measures and increased public investment that restores and expands the public sector where black and brown workers are disproportionately employed, it turns out would do more to reduce even the racial wealth gap than genuine pipe dream proposals like a reparations or other Rube Goldberg-like asset-building strategies. Resist- <laughs> yeah, he's a pretty good writer for being an academic. Resistance to such an approach throws into relief the extent to which anti-racism as a politics is an artifact and an engine of ne- neoliberalism. It does a better job legitimizing market-based principles of social justice than increasing racial equality. And a key component of that work of legitimization is deflection of social democratic alternatives. Okay, Tammy, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, my reaction to a lot of Adolf Reed stuff is always, he's not wrong. But the reason that I do the double negative is because of something I think is, you know, kind of uncomfortable in a lot of his analyses, which is what gets him in trouble, which is that... He some it sometimes feels like he's setting up a little bit of a straw man of the other argument. Like he kind of is giving like a little bit of the weakest part of what you know. I guess he would call race first cysts. Yeah. You know, and so yeah, yeah. But kind of putting that aside, like yeah, this piece very very much speaks to me. You know, so he draws on Bruning, but he also draws on the sociologist Robert Manduka, right? Mm-hmm. 
who's, you know, looking at these disparities and yeah, I mean, basically what Reed is concerned about is a discourse in which we get excited that there are more black billionaires yeah. or uh, that we ignore the fact that, you know, most people who are killed by cops are white. You yeah. know, so, um, yeah, I have to say, like, I, as somebody who cares a lot about low wage work and, you know, I think that this really summarizes a lot of it. Um, but yeah. again, I think there's some discomfort in his argumentative strategy from time to time the strategy to be like uh tell me if you agree with this for me like the thing that bothers me about the strategy is that it seems and it is sort of straw manny in that he basically says there are two choices that you have right you can either be ibram x kendi and robin (laughs) d'angelo and you know come up with all these race specific alternatives that only look at disparity and proportions right everything now is like because data is so important, all anti-racist talk is about proportionality and about the percentage of such and such, and is yeah. this proportionate or not proportionate. Um, schooling, all the schooling talk is like that, for example, right? Like, uh, like you know, environmental justice claims are also done by proportionality. Yeah. And, um, and then the other alternative is to, like, make everybody take money away from billionaires and make, every, you know, make everyone's income more. Right. Thing. And he sees this as a mutually exclusive thing, right? There's choice A, there's choice B. Kind of, yeah. Andy, do you think that that do you think that that's right? Like, do you think there's only choice A and choice B? Well, so this is, I think the this he makes two arguments. I think that's the second argument you're focusing on. I think that is obviously the kind of shakier one, where uh, I think the first argument is the, the statistic argument, which I think is kind of persuasive. It's just like a clear analytical thing about how categories mess up things and. If we use different categories, we could see different realities. The second Mm -hmm. argument, I think, is more speculative, which is what you're getting at, right? Which he would say, he's kind of drawing this correlation, right? Why is it the case that this anti-racism, this racial disparity discourse has risen in the time of, you know, he identifies it as like Thatcherite neoliberalism of the last 30, 40 years? And that's speculative. And I think you're right that I, I, I would be open to the idea that there are only two choices and that there's like actual class interests invested in the D'Angelo mm. uh, type argument that, you know, is sort of uh, aggressively suppressing class analysis. Mm. I would be open to that, but I think that he, that, that, that has to be proven. And that argument has, then, you know, that would be like, you know, thinking about what NGO sponsored these reports. Maybe there's, there's like some, you know, like, pro-capitalist, anti-communist NGO organization that is really pushing the racial disparity discourse and actively uh, discouraging class analysis or something like that. Um, yeah, that, that, that's frustrating, too. I think it's frustrating, too, because it's it, he doesn't he never proves that. And that is one yeah. thing I find frustrating about it. And the way that he does prove it is that he kind of picks at little things like this person tweeted this or this right. person's talk <laughs> was sponsored by this like multinational oil company. And that, um, you know, like, but I'm sure that if you asked Robin D'Angelo and if you asked Ibram X. Kendi, should there be billionaires, right? I'm sure both of them would say no, you know? And if you ask them, like, should we do the type of analysis that <laughs> Andy is making a face? I'm not sure about that. But well, the, my point is that it's slippery, right? Like, they, of course, they can they can right. occupy both sides while pushing one right. side. Someone right? could so both like, like those books and yeah, Bernie, and Bernie the, books. And again, from a debate sense, right? The problem is because there's no clean uniqueness or like uh, to the two arguments. There's no there's no mutual yeah. exclusivity. You can do both, and you can say that you do both, right? right. And there's nothing stopping Robin D'Angelo from saying that she does both because there's there's no contradiction between the two that is inherent, right? Like you right. can do an anti-racist 
uh, white fragility type of thing and also say there shouldn't be billionaires and that money should be redistributed. And that that's sort of the problem that I have with the choice that he sets up, which is that like I believe it's true, right? In some ways, I do think that these are t- the two choices that face us. Yeah. I think that argumentatively, it's almost impossible for him to do, despite his continually trying, right? Because I think that the other side can always just slip into some sort of Warren-style, you know, populism or even <laughs> Kamala Harris-style populism that doesn't. I, I think Warren's probably means more than Kamala's, but like, let's say Kamala Harris is t- style populism and just say, hey, yeah, I'm now a populist, you know, yeah. and it doesn't really matter. Uh, Tammy, what do you think? Yeah, well, just one thing on the historical point. I mean, I think, yeah, I agree with Andy that he is saying something about the coincidence of these this historical period. But, you know, I mean, I think that's kind of just obviously wrong to me, given that I think if you look at like philosophers over hundreds of years, they're talking about this basically that they're they? okay. Like who? In the, no, in the sense that they're okay with a world in which like, as long as people kind of have the same opportunity, like analyses of fairness, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, would yeah, basically yeah. say that if we have a certain number of black billionaires, a certain number of white billionaires, right. like that's equity or whatever, right? That's why it's called. So I think like it's the new liberalism. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's an old idea, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like There's that's like here. fairness, right? So anyway, right. but yeah, we have now this new kind of caste that's been um, developed through this period of austerity. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I I think one thing about, about Reed is, um, you know, that as I'm reading it, I mean, I appreciate the fact that he takes this analysis in so many different directions. So in Andy's interview with Merlin, like we're talking about it in a public health context, and obviously he's had a lot to say during COVID about sort of this disparity discourse. Um, but yeah, for me, I think the most compelling part of this particular paper is where he talks about like low wage workers and what's happened to workers over this period of time. So I've, yeah, I guess I'm thinking a lot about that. And in terms of your guys's analyses of read, I don't have too much more to add. I think we're kind of in sync yeah, know, the, in terms of the- what he's doing. The most coronavirus has made his argument much more compelling, I think, in a way. And I think that proportionality in the conversation of coronavirus has been actually completely, uh, I think it's been actually harmful, right? Like, whereas most of these things are just like, who gives a shit, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just me and 800 people who care (laughs) and the 52 professors who are pretending to be black and like (laughs) 7,000 other professors in America. Nobody else gives a shit. But in terms of trying to make it so racialized in terms of the conflict, the who is getting sick from coronavirus? And there's no doubt that black people and Latino people are getting disproportionately sick. But by just saying that black people are getting sick or that Latino people are getting sick, you basically are resorting to race science if you don't say anything else. Like, who are the black people who are getting sick? Who are the Latino people who are getting sick? It's people who are who have poor health outcomes because they're poor. You know, and there are people who are working essential jobs. So like, you know, working in food processing plants, working in prisons or prisoners. Right. That those are the people who are getting sick. That's why it's disproportionate. And it does feel it did feel this time around with coronavirus that there was an actual effort to not get to that moment. Right. Like that, it was about, hey, this virus is racist. And I don't want to reduce people's arguments in that sort of ways. But I'll just always remember that there's this argument that there is this paper that came out that was widely cited by people like, um, you know, very influential MSNBC hosts. And it said that. Uh, 62% of the coronavirus deaths in America happened in counties that were disproportionately black, right? And all these people actually misconstrued or misread this study to say 62% of people who have died from coronavirus are black. 
And the thing that I kept thinking about is like, well, why would you come up with a statistic? You know, why would you go to look at counties that are disproportionately black and lo- judge a coronavirus effect by that? You know, why would you not look at class? Why would you not look at work? Why would you not look at where yeah. geographically the, the infections are? And the answer is because they, I think the people who didn't wanted to make it just about race purely. Yeah. And I found that I found that to be really I found that to be really sort of sad, and but I also found it to be actually harmful to you know like the more of that type of discourse that is out there, the less we're actually able to figure out where the virus is. Now here in yeah. Northern California, it's very obvious where the virus is, but people won't say it. It's in Latino communities where people live in big congregate housing. They're all essential workers, right? And when I talked to some of the people who were around this, one of the things they said was that in this environment of Trump, they don't want to call it a Latino disease, right? Mm. And so I have two thoughts about that. The first is like, yeah, that sucks that you would call it a Latino disease <laughs> when people are xenophobic. But secondly, you know, maybe we don't have to call it Latino disease. Maybe we can just say essential workers, you know, who are yeah. almost all Latino in our cities and it's not their fault. It's not because they like ran yeah. over the border that they're getting it. Yeah. Like, mm. I read that in a different way, though. Like I read, I read that more as a tragedy of our demographic overlap. In other words, like sure. in so many different contexts, you can just look at like congregations of Black people in census tracts and be like, "That's where poverty is," and but, that is more of it just an indictment of like sure. our society. So I think, in other words, like I don't, I don't approve that method, but I do. I there, I think there's a reason for that, and I think it's become like a little bit of a lazy crutch in demographic analyses. Yeah. I, I will say when I was reading the Reed article, you know, I've been reading the Philadelphia Inquirer COVID stats, and I have also noticed like it's mostly black and Latino and the white mm-hmm. and the Asian numbers are much lower. And I have probably thought in my head like a half form thought like this is about class and not obviously. But the when he puts it in the article so explicitly that it's not a, that it's not about race, it's, it is about class. And that raises the question of like, why do we report it? Why don't we? Why don't we report class as a statistic for recording mm-hmm. medical data? I think that drove home the point to me that that's because uh, we see class as a social category and we see race as a natural category. Um, but that, which is also, yeah. which is kind of their point, right? That race gets naturalized through this type of data collection and reporting um, in a way that uh, is dangerous. And the anecdote that he has in the article is. I didn't even know this happened, but like Sanjay Gupta, I guess, on, on CNN had said something like biological factors for getting COVID was like being a person yeah. of color, which is outrageous, right? But that's exactly the right. kind of thing that, uh, this leads. that you know, Reed had written about and he had written about with Merlin, right? With the sort of reification of race as a, as a natural, as a, as a category of natural science, um, like makes, makes people who are like well-intentioned, liberals, whatever, mm-hmm. but uh, more or less... Um, Reinscribe like 19th century ideas yeah. uh, about race. And so I think that I think that question of why don't we report COVID statistics by class is kind of a telling question. Um, and I don't really have a good answer for it other than I think it's because the medical community doesn't see it as relevant because but they see race as relevant because I, I think they see it as relevant. I think that th- what we're dealing with here is actually like a bureaucratic problem, which is that if you look at university studies that came out, for example, the University of San Francisco, I sorry, UC San Francisco, which did a lot of studies around mm-hmm. here in the Bay Area, they always aggregate it by salary, you know, and by yeah, profession. I, that I think yeah. that counties and city governments and it's all county governments honestly because that who does uh department, department. of health stuff mm-hmm. like the health departments 
don't aggregate by class, right? And so I don't think it is like an unwillingness of people to look at that way. I think it's actually sort of something that's built into the system a long time ago, and then it's producing bad results now. But but I do think that's probably a relic oh. of of medical. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I think yeah. they can. I mean, some of them do. I think it's just the data scraping we're used to, and that you know that the public wants. Because if you look yeah. at like census data, if you go up into Census Tracker and you open right. it up, it's just as easy to scrape the you know, income data. I mean, one thing though, I think in Reed's story that actually to me is a cautionary tale is he talks about how in the US we collect so much data on race and we don't collect as much data on class. Like, I don't know that that's entirely true, but you know, and then he says, well, in Europe, they don't really do race stuff, but they do a ton more class stuff. Yeah. But okay, you know, but then you look at like, I mean, I guess this is always the example, but a place like France where there's no programs around race because you're not really supposed to talk about race. There's no data collection on race. Like that also is a problem, you know? So I I would say that like, there's a way in which like the rejection of the racial disparity discourse, if there is in fact two choices, as we've been saying, like can also be quite dangerous, you know? And like one concrete example of that is for instance, in the U.S., and some of the unions, like the trade unions for you know construction, these are historically racist, right? There's always yeah. these stories about like the apprentice programs that are blocking out black people, et cetera, et cetera. So then there have in some unions been like minority apprenticeship programs, right? So that in France would be amazing, but they can never make that. You know? mm. So I think that that to me, I was, I was kind of interested in him unpacking that a little bit more. It just seemed very kind of simplified. Yeah. Well- I think that there's another thing where it's not mutually exclusive. Like, I think that it is yeah. important to point out that most of the people who are dying from this are black and Latino. And that I think For that sure. you should definitely say that because I think that it does bring up other questions about, like, why doesn't the Republican Party seem to care about this? Right. Like, it's an actual question that you can ask um, yeah. if these are the people who are dying. Um, why is it mostly black and Latino people who are in these positions? That's another question. But to not bring it up is the problem. Right. And so. Reed, I think, wants to, again, is sort of presenting this false choice where, you know, like, it's like, well, if you have the one, then you should, then, and you don't have the other, then you have to get rid of the other to get the one, right? Like, if that makes sense, right? Like, you you need to not do it by race. I, my, my read on, read, but, you know, the the way that I think (laughs) about all of this is essentially that after reading a lot of what he's written and, and, you know, iterations of this argument out there, which is that, I can't quite figure out in my head if the choice is real or not, right? And the, I <laughs> yeah. know that that intellectually it's not a real choice. Um, I know that. Like, it, it, I just have done enough logic games and debate in my head to know that these are not mutually exclusive in any sort of way. But I think the question is, is it like in reality, is it culturally right. mutually exclusive? As a matter of policy, yeah. public policy. And yeah. for that, I don't know what the answer is. And yeah. I don't I don't like to yeah. think about it because I think that I would conclude that it might be right. Because so much of the stuff is so like, you know, like, I don't know. I just go back to this, like, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion type of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Robin D'Angelo is as big of a deal as everybody says she is. But, you know, she's kind of a big deal. Right. Like there's a lot of companies that are going to be using her book and using that type of analysis to try and, quote unquote, defeat racism. Does that preclude other types of, you know, ways to stop racism? Probably. Right. Um, If it is that, especially if it is in that class of people, like right, if it is like the upper middle class people who 
or do all of the messaging in America. Like if if those are the people, like I don't think Jeff Bezos is going to attend like a diversity and inclusion. So who cares, you know? But like you know, everyone who works for him, maybe. Yeah. Um, I I I think that it is in that way. It does feel more. It, I guess I would just say that it feels more mutually exclusive than it yeah. actually is, and yeah. that's where I feel more sympathetic towards him. The mutual exclusivity argument would be about how the people, the sort of liberal leader, thought leaders, I guess, have a class interest in suppressing that kind of stuff. And that's something I can't figure out myself. Like, you know, during the last two Democratic primary cycles with all these liberal commentators who just seem to have this visceral reaction to a Bernie or a Warren type policies where I just can't figure out, like, do they have some vested interest or is this just like ideology? Like they were just raised in a certain way to think that these things are impossible and are un-American, mm-hmm. right? And I was, and I guess I, I was surprised that like a lot of liberal columnists for, you know, the New York Times who would just kind of say anything that Bernie was talking about was beyond the realm of possibility. Like it's one thing if you're like, you know, you could claim like, oh, this person can be traced back to like their, int- their investment in this co- corporation or whatever. But I think there's just as a generation of liberals who have been raised to think that this is not how you, this is not a solution. This is not a way to think about the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, maybe that's what Reed is getting at also with the Thatcherite um, I think so, argument, yeah. right? That it's about ideology and not this, not, not this sort of crude, you know, you have a vested interest in, in, in being, in stopping socialism. Yeah. Tammy, do you think that like the fights that happened within our industry for like diversity and, you know, like in terms of and the sort of woke uh, representation politics that really has become like uh, fashionable in our industry, which is like, oh, my God, we have another TV show, you know, made by like a black woman. Oh, my God, we have a movie with Asian people in it. Like, it might like, do you think that that is uh, like, do you think that that is also upholding class interests in this sort of way? Like, do you think that's also mutually exclusive with a more rigorous class analysis that might yield better results like racially? My bigger answer is yes. And then my qualification to that is it's useful insofar as like, let's take the writer's room example that you had cited earlier. Does that provide a pathway for entry level work? So if you're, if you're bringing in PAs and, you know, young writers and assistants and stuff that, could then potentially have a career that they never could have envisioned that nobody would have taken a chance on them for. That's great. But if we have these kind of, um, you know, just, I guess, standout shows, showcase shows, basically, then then no, right? Like if they're going to practice the same employment, the same compensation, the same sort of philosophical orientation that, you know, white people who are in power have, then that's useless. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Go ahead, Andy. Just like if, if their hope is to be that person in power. Right, you know, and they're that, replicating the same right. patterns. Is that, yeah. a, is that if their form of class class agonism is just they want to be that person who's at the top. Exactly, right. yeah. Yeah, I find, I, I, I don't know how, I guess I just don't know how important that stuff is. Yeah. But yeah. I also find it like when I evaluate it by itself and don't care if it's important or not. It's the thing that I react the most negatively against it in terms of the type of things that Adolf Reed would criticize, right? Because mm-hmm. I just don't understand why it matters. And I also think that it takes up so much. There's so there's this almost like offensively rhapsodic way in which it's talked about. Yeah, that, that it matters true. so much, you know, and that this is like the evocation of a human being. 
then you look at the person and the person you know is generally like you know i i don't know like the person has made a show you watch it you're like okay i guess that was good you know like i don't quite understand <laughs> why it, it, it almost you know wesley morris wrote an essay about this a few years ago in which like he talked about uh insecure and how he didn't really like insecure but he didn't feel like he was able to say he didn't like insecure yeah right? and i think that that i think about that essay all the time first of all because i think wesley is like you know, incredible writer and, you know, somebody I, I um, I was, I was lucky enough to work with at Grantland, but like, uh, the other side of it is just like, that's how I always kind of feel. Like, it's not that, (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't matter. All TV. (laughs) All Asian All TV, yeah, but a lot of Asian stuff as well. We created this podcast to give Jay a platform to criticize all Hollywood Asians, basically. (laughs) I was like, I don't quite understand what the big deal is. I don't understand why I'm supposed to be so excited by it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, like, I I guess I just don't see why that stuff is political. Like, I think it is a labor question, like you said, Tammy. I think that it is maybe somewhat psychological and that I guess it makes sense to have people out there. But right now, it you know, honestly, it, it seems like the world is taking care of that, right? Like, why are, like, is it easier for Asian dudes who are growing up in America right now? It's not because of crazy rich Asians. It's because of K-pop, <laughs> right? Like, it's because of it's because of an international market and it's because Asia is richer than it was when, like, our parents came over on, like, a plane and left, like, a country that was a bunch of shacks, you know, like, by the river, Tammy, right? Like, you know, so <laughs> that was, like, their big, you know, like, their oh big God. coming out party was, like, the 1988 Olympics, and everything before that was just, like, dictatorship and poverty. And now it's, like, a real, you know, it's a huge country with, uh, you know, with a, they make great cars, they make good cultural <laughs> products, and so, of course, the, the, the stuff is going to change. I don't think it's because five jobs changed in Hollywood. Um, okay. Speaking of Hollywood, our last topic today is the movie Mulan. (laughs) Tammy, this is our opportunity to use Andy's, uh, you know, utilize his like expertise on all of this. Mulan is under a lot of heat. Uh, I don't really understand why. Andy, why don't you tell us why? (laughs) Have you guys seen it? No, of course not. That's the other thing. I've never seen Mulan, so. (laughs) I haven't seen seen the Disney one either. Right. I've never seen it. Um, Guys. Anyway, go on. The actual, the controversy I think I'm more sympathetic to is an earlier one that the main actress, uh, like, I probably, she might have felt pressure, like everyone in China to do this, tweeted out all sorts of, like, pro-Beijing, anti-Hong Kong stuff last year. So there's, like, been a protest, low-key protest by, like, Hong Kong and Taiwaners and overseas. The article that came out today in the Washington Post was, um, I don't know if it's expose, but just a little column about how the Disney production company worked with um, a department in Xinjiang, right? The same, the word in Chinese could be translated as either publicity or propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the propagacity department, um, basically the PR department, right? Um, the that definitely also works with the detention camps or the re-education camps in Xinjiang. Um, and so that's a tough that's a tough association <laughs> yeah there's yeah, a tough association. it's not like being like oh well, this person liked somebody's tweet it's like no right, they right, also right. did they also did pr right. for the re-education <laughs> yeah but at the same time it's like i think one thing i was getting at with or the one thing that darren was talking about in our talk about a month or two ago was just basically it's like it's endemic it's everywhere in china there's no clean hands even if you're not in xinjiang right these clothing sweat sweatshops factories that are in the coastal cities that make stuff like Nike and Adidas and Uniqlo 
they all have more or less forced labor from Xinjiang yeah. workers who are kind of uh, made available through recruiting agencies to work wherever there's a need for cheap labor in China. Um, and, you know, all of our ketchup apparently comes from Xinjiang. So drawing this quite clean distinction. Ketchup? Yeah. Oh, Most of the world's tomatoes come from Xinjiang. Yeah. Oh. Cotton also. The rock cotton. Not the, not the tomatoes I grow in my yard. Yeah, exactly. Shaves <laughs> off the grid now. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm morally clean. Um, okay, so let, let me do a little clarification sure. to this, Andy, for the listeners, which is, uh, and I want to read from this article from Isaac Stonefish um, in the Washington Post that Andy referenced. There's a dark side to the lands, to those landscapes uh, that's completely contextless sentence, so please ignore that. <laughs> Disney filled Mulan in regions across China, among other locations. In the credits, Disney offers a special thanks to more than a dozen Chinese institutions that helped with the film. These include four Chinese Communist Party propaganda departments in the region of Xinjiang, as well as the Public Security Bureau of the, of the city of uh, Turpan in the same regions, organizations that are facilitating crimes against humanity. It's sufficiently astonishing that it bears repeating Disney has thanked four propaganda departments and a public security bureau in Xinjiang, a region in northwest China that is the site of one of the world's worst human rights abuses happening today. Okay, Andy, is, and Tammy, I want you to pepper him with questions too. Like, is this is this fair? Is it like a fair assessment? So, and this, my take, which you can kind of predict based on the, if you've, you know, um, followed or listened to, for instance, the interview with Darren, is that, um, you know, by all means or by all measures, right, what's happening in Xinjiang is bad and one shouldn't equivocate about it. But if you want to think about what made it possible or what are the root causes of it, it's far more systemic and endemic. <laughs> I didn't mean to rhyme. Uh, then, like, there's Those bad Those two don't people. really rhyme. <laughs> systemic <laughs> and endemic. It doesn't really rhyme. rhyme. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's a slant rhyme. <laughs> yeah, systemic. Um, it's... I don't. I don't think it's fair. Basically, I don't. I think the framing is off, and I think the framing is self-serving in a very nationalistic way, that obscures like the actual historical dynamics that make what's happening in Xinjiang possible. And this article reminds me of an article that came out with ESPN like a month ago, I guess, about how the NBA in China was also participating in in Xinjiang, but also in these like basketball camps in other parts of China, where it feels like these are very selective articles that make the United States Chinese business relationship appear scandalous. And they kind of take these spectacular incidents and blow them up and talk about, I mean, it basically sounds like we good moral um, modern Westerners have been, have gone native and we shouldn't have done that because now we've stooped down to their level. It's very like condescending and moralizing where I think what's really happening, like when I read these articles, what I really think I'm reading is just a basic description of how all United States Chinese trade has operated for the last 40 years, which is American companies go to China and they just let the Chinese companies take care of it. And they will, they're the ones in charge of the labor. They're the ones in charge of getting the contracts. They're the ones in charge of finding the locations. And I think the basic agreement has always been we American companies are just going to close our ears and close our eyes. We don't want to hear about how you got that thing that you mm. got. But then every once in a while it blows up, like when Nike sweatshops were a big deal in the 1990s when iPhone factories were a big deal in 2010. And, you know, there's a little, you know, there's a, like a whole ritual of denouncing and saying we didn't know and we'll do a better job of oversight, et cetera, et cetera. But like in the long run, they probably won't leave or they probably will just kind of make some, uh, you know, short-term superficial fix. 
and no one ever asks why like what are the root causes in the first place yeah but the root causes are like one thing like that's interesting to a scholar but right like you can still say disney even if everyone else does this you also shouldn't do this right no for sure so my bigger point is like the reason this keeps happening is not because good america good american companies are stooping to the level of bad chinese companies because i think that's still I think like, you know, Isaac's article, I don't know Isaac at all, but just reading the article and the ESPN article, they still are framing this as like two different sides, the American side and the Chinese side. And I think the better way to frame it is to kind of push them together and to think about how uh, both sides are kind of agreeing to work together. And this has been the arrangement forever. And until yeah. it gets called out every once in a while by an Isaac or by a Human Rights Watch monitoring sweatshops, right? They had no problem with this. And both sides have no problem with this. And like, I don't think American companies would care that a lot of their stuff comes from forced labor, you know, as long as it gets them the right, you know, production costs to make a profit Mm -hmm. um, until, right. And I think, um, but until like a NGO or a reporter kind of exposes it, and then they're going to go through all this. I think the best way for us to understand it and the best way, I don't know the way forward to like stopping this, but I would say the first step would be to kind of put the companies from different countries together and, and and view them as part of one bigger problem rather than saying we American companies are different and moral and Western and liberal and the Chinese companies are, you know, communist and Chinese and, you know, you know. Don't and, you think people kind of- have some understanding of that, though? Because, like, if you look at the, remember when uh, when the NBA thing was happening and everybody was like, well, your iPhone, right? Yeah. Like you can't get mad at LeBron if I think that people have a sense I don't, that a lot of people do have a greater sense, but I agree that that's not how it's formed when these criticisms happen. Yeah, I mean, maybe when these the, criticisms happen. It makes it seem like it is somehow like, and I will say that this is true of this article, the WAPO article, Washington Post article as well, that it makes it seem like it's it was extraordinary that this happened, right? right. And I agree with you. I don't think it's extraordinary that this happened. Like, if you need to go find a nice vista in the fucking mountains of China. Yeah. And you're Disney and you're going to bring a shitload of cameras in. <laughs> Guess what? You're going to have to call somebody. Yeah. You know, <laughs> That person is probably not going to, you know, they yeah. might have done work for this shit. Now, if you've been following this at all, this is completely unsurprising. The best research, which I think we linked to on the Darren episode, comes from Australia, which I think has indirect links to the government there. So don't know exactly what's going on there. But the think tank there has been producing all sorts of interesting reports that basically show anything that is state owned or tied to the state, including TikTok and WeChat and all these media companies, uh, do some work in Xinjiang um, and do some have some connection to the re-education camps. So this article is honestly is kind of saying very little or very little that's surprising. Um, but it's going to capture headlines. I've already seen people kind of, you know, share it and and act, act shocked and scandalized by it. Um, I mean, to be fair, that is how advocacy works, right? Like you need a spectacular moment or an yeah. ex- occasional expose to draw attention to a problem. That is always there. You know, it's but, not like these sorts of labor violations are secret at all, of course. Sure, but my worry is that the way it gets framed, right? Is yeah, that I understand. I read his article less that way and more as just like, in a way, it's it's almost similar to the articles that, that uh, criticize like Hollywood studios for... Um, you know, changing their endings and stuff to, and changing their plots to <laughs> fit Chinese um, wishes, you know, viewers' wishes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, there's something like Americans are very obsessed with this sort of like Hollywood, like. Well, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, this is a side topic, but isn't it true that like um, more and more American entertainment companies are catering to Chinese audiences? Yeah. Like, oh yeah, that's been happening for like know. 10, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And, like that's why I mean, everything. Everything you in the can't make a like, movie with a big budget unless it can sell in China. That's why all the movies right. are fucking yeah. comic book movies yeah. now. So because, I mean. Like, yeah, I mean, this U.S.-China relationship has, it's not, like, the people who are willing to criticize this also have to, like you were saying, Jay, have to also be willing to look at where their clothes came from, where their electronics sure. come from. And also now, where these these companies are looking to Chinese, um, Chinese clients and also um, customers as their next source of profits, right? So it's like, if you're going to, criticize this you have to also be willing to go i think go all the way and think about like what is the entire apparatus that's making this possible and not just focus on the superficial but isn't I, that like isn't that like what tom cotton is doing yeah i think again like what i guess what i was saying is because this article to me reads like a tom cotton something that tom cotton was going to rant and rave about sure and i don't I, you know sure. and the choice should not be like tanky or tom yeah. cotton right uh, but I think maybe it has to be. I don't know. <laughs> like I find it very difficult to find some sort of like I feel like I don't. I'm not accusing you of this, Andy. Yeah, but yeah. generally, when academics do this type of stuff, they sort of de they contextualize things until it becomes inert, right? Sure. Like where you can always go back and say, well, not exactly, and then in the end, you're just like, well, okay, let's sure. not do anything. Yeah. Um, like so, I, I'm not accusing you of doing that, okay. but I do think that that is sort of the way in which a lot of people are going to think about this. That's a lot of the way that people thought about the NBA in China. And they're just like, no, well, okay, at some visceral level, right, at some human level, um, it sucks that LeBron James has done this, right? Like that mm -hmm. LeBron James has come out and has sort of said, you don't even get to ask me about China, and then turns around and wears Nike Black Lives Matter shirts that were probably <laughs> produced in, like, China under, like, horrible labor, labor conditions. The contradiction is not is something that we kind of... Uh, I think that it's something that we kind of slough off now. We shrug it off. But I don't think that we should, right? Like, I think that there is that question, and then there's a larger question geopolitically, like, hegemonically and, and, uh, and, and politically that is much more... You know, I think that one is probably much more open to sort of context. But there is also like, hey, Disney, don't do this. Yeah. Right? And I think that, that that's a fair thing to say. That's true. But then every company, Apple doesn't. No, do that's it. true. But, you know, you can also say all of the companies suck too, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I think right. it's perfectly within left politics to say that all American corporations suck. Right. Yeah. And to me, for me, this is just <laughs> almost just like a discursive analytical thing, the way it's framed in terms of, you know, crime against humanity, human rights abuses, this emphasizing that's the Chinese Communist Party doing it. To me, this all sounds like this sort of spectacular, like liberal missionary discourse. Right. Uh, we are like, uncomfortable generally, I think, with some of these human rights discourses that right. have been Right. So, I mean, I'm always, I'm never like a big fan of that. Yeah. And things, that's right? very much in that frame. I mean, I think like the illogical thing, the illogical thing about this, of course, is if you take it to its extent, logical extension endpoint you're talking basically just about sanctions yeah you're talking about not doing business at all with like bad actors yeah yeah and i mean that, but i don't think any of these people actually would say that right they would say like it's actually okay for us to use the sweatshop labor and i think that's to me that's like what i hear from you and that like your dissection of the human rights hypocrisy which i think is true because i there are very few people who 
say part of this and then are willing to go all the way. Yeah, I think it's right. They want to use the relationship with China while it's convenient for them, which is basically bailing out the American economy for the last 30 years. But then they want to criticize it, especially at a moment when they feel like China is a threat. Um, and the the facts are not wrong, but I feel like they're also kind of selective, like people have pointed out. And this might be a tinky talking point, right? But there's all sorts of terrible things that are also happening. It's definitely place- a tinky talking point. Yeah, you've gotten tanky, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> But it is like, okay, I it's think good. About- we needed more intellectual diversity on the show. <laughs> Tim and I are too similar. So now we have Ta- Andy, the, yeah, yeah. We have I, Andy, I, the CCC, pl- the CCP plant. Yeah, on exactly. our show. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'll go with my, go my Chinese name now. Yeah. Uh, I, I think about the other like sort of world that I think about academically is India, South Asia, and there's all sorts of terrible things going on in India. And I do think about like, why, why don't, um, why is it not a talking point that Modi is so terrible? Uh, historically, the Modi government is so terrible to Muslims and Muslim minorities. And it's because India, probably part of it is like India is not a threat. And in fact, yeah, no, right? for sure. Also, they're nominally sure. a democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, like they have yeah. adhered to all of those like norms right. that were set up to define a democracy, right. even though obviously like his organization was influenced by Hitler. Right. You know, I think that I think that eventually yeah. the situation if Modi stays in power will resemble what happens in Xinjiang, right? But I do think that they don't have like sterilization re-education camps in India yet. Yeah, yeah but they've had like straight up like. It, but the scale, is, the scale is different right now, right? And so I think that, like, I think that the international response to the to the to the concentration camps in. Xinjiang is like understated. Like yeah. I think that it's not as big of a deal as, or I don't. I think it's like too too little is made of it. And so, I don't know. I have a hard time like sort of equivocating between the, or not equivocating. I have a hard time conflating the two of those together. Yeah. Um, I don't want to be. I don't want to. I know like, that offends your tankiness. <laughs> you're like making all these tanky faces right now. I wish people no, could no, see just... you're like you're like grimacing and like and scoffing because because <laughs> we're saying bad stuff about china so def- defend your boys Andy. No, what i was gonna say earlier was i think it's i don't want to say like they're done but there is a uh there is some indication that china is reacting to the international pressure to cut them down and oh can obviously be like in support of that without being in favor of this sort of cold war rhetoric of like yeah. being pro sanctions and being all that stuff so i mean like uh, there's like you know and, uh, to get into like i don't want to think this in debate terms but like there's like the policy and then there's like the framing and these are like two separate things that you could be you could be you could support the policy recommendation of do whatever it takes to you know put, exert public pressure to shut down the camps re-education mm-hmm. camps but you could also say like the framing the way it gets framed is kind of really insidious and has long-term consequences in terms of um, how the United how, how the United States kind of poses itself, or pitches itself, the government pitches itself as sort of the policeman uh, of what China what what happens in China, you know. Um, so I would say I would say that, which is I don't know, that's tanky. That's probably really tanky. <laughs> that's super tanky. That's like the most tanky thing we've ever. I almost I feel like I have to apologize to our listeners. I know, um, but like our. Uh, no, I mean, I don't. I I think the distinction you're making is a little bit fuzzy, honestly. Like, I don't. 
I think that if you're going to say do whatever policy it takes, then part of whatever it takes to stop the re-education program is to maybe in like 10% bad faith, even though I don't think it's particularly bad faith to say, hey, Disney, you fucked up, you know? And I don't think you need to sort of like chin stroke about that and say, well, is this completely like a 100% context perfect type of provocation that you've made? Like that's part of the policy to stop that stuff, you know? So I don't know how to put this, but I don't think Disney even knows what they did. And I don't know if you could blame them for not knowing that. But like I said, like every American but company. Of just... course, you should blame them for not knowing that. I mean, like, you know, like that's that's the purpose of this type of journalism is to point out to Disney that they did that. Well, also, it doesn't excuse them that they didn't even sure. know it, you know. Sure, sure. sure. But. Yeah. Andy, are you being pressured by the CCP right <laughs> now? Like, are there are there no, Chinese obviously. trolls in your mentions yeah, that are? are, are, are yeah, 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 yeah. Is there a man in the room with you? With a, <laughs> who's I guess gonna, I would who's... say it's the system that both parties participate in, where it's just agreed upon that they don't know, and that's bad. But it's also bad in every other case it happens. Sure. Sure, it's also bad in this case. That's our only point. Yeah, no, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this reminds- okay. Two of the you guys know like North Korean animators. There's like a really big animation yeah. industry that's outsourced, and like yeah. reportedly, like part of the Simpsons movie in 2007, among other works, was produced. Really, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, Simpsons because it movie. was like a ton of South Korean animators have been yeah. used for many years, right? On Simpsons and other shows. Didn't Banksy, when Banksy did a Simpson intro, I think he included that. He had yeah, like a five minute long intro with like yeah. I think like forced forced Korean labor as part of it. Right. So like there has been some outsourcing through South Korean vendors into North Korea. Anyway, it's complicated, but this kind of reminded me of it. And, you know, again, I think this leads to like the logical endpoint is sanctions. The logical endpoint is, is this a country so bad that we will not do any business with it? Yeah. You know, which, of course, would be like the the logical position, but no one will ever say that. Yeah, because the people who are of the kind of I'm not saying this is what Isaac believes, but following this argument, they would probably just say like, oh, as long as it's not like obviously right Xinjiang product right? right you can have a, a factory in Shenzhen where there yeah. are workers but we'll just close our eyes to that part yeah. so yeah I take your point yeah yeah I, I I the part I agree with you Andy and all of this is that I think that nothing is going to end any of this like right they're not going to sanction China like what are they going to do they're just going to do a bunch of tough talking for the election and then it's going to be over there's too many economic ties. I thought for a little bit when everybody was really mad at China because of coronavirus that like maybe it would happen. But it seems to be settling down. Biden, remember Biden was talking about how he was going to run as like the anti-China guy. He hasn't mentioned China at all. You know, like it, it barely comes up. Right. And part of I mean, we haven't seen the. I've I've actually been wondering when the debates are happening. Are they? Well, okay, but I mean, I'm talking about like the, the, all the public appearances that After he's that done so far. Yeah, he hasn't done anything, and sure. so. I think that basically the business leaders who actually run this country told both of them to pipe the fuck down about this stuff, you know, and Trump's just like, no, I'm just going to say China virus. And he's like, well, that doesn't really matter. Like, you know, Uh, it doesn't even really matter to me. So like, well, you know, why would it matter to China? So like a local TV as in Poconos in the Poconos, the the whole ad was about make China pay for what they did. So I was like, oh, okay. The local Republican Party, or like, for yeah, the local like state representative who called himself a Trump Republican. Um, oh yeah, that is a talking point with a lot of the like local Trump people. But you know, I think yeah. that's just stoking local racism and stuff like that. Sure. Okay, uh, we are at an hour thirty, so I think this is a good time to stop. 
Andy and Tammy, thank you for your show. Andy, uh, you know, if you're receiving money from the Chinese Communist Party, then you have to split it three ways with us as per the agreement that we've made before before starting this show. Um, but thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can get, DM us on Twitter. It's at TTSGpod. Or you can email us at TTSGpod podcast i think is that right just say goodbye pod oh time to say guys time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com um my brain has melted from the heat so i apologize if i if i was incoherent during this podcast it's like 95 degrees in my basement which is shocking because it was a little bit cooler here um and uh but thank you to you both and i will see you guys next time